So I was talking to my best friend the other day and I was telling her about the interview that I did with Nicole Bixler. And I was saying, you know, if you are looking for someone who really is the real deal and embodies what social work is meant to be and, and the, the real kind of radical uh, ethics and, and choices um, around that, this is, this is your person. She is, <laughs> I, I just, I have so much respect for people that are going out on a limb to do things that are com important to them and, and feel true and meaningful to them, even if it's controversial or even if everybody doesn't think it's important or people disagree with what you're doing or it's not considered um, awesome in all of the circles. Um when people are able to still choose that for themselves, despite the fact that it might be hard or it, it might not be widely accepted or it, it might not be done in the typical way that things are done. You know, there's all these boundaries and red tape around how we're supposed to do things as social workers. When people figure out how to get around that or just say, I mean, you know, in, in ways that are okay, obviously. <laughs> but like when, when people still do what they feel like is right, despite those things, that's, oh, I just, I'm so impressed. If you can't tell, I mean, I'm just, I'm so impressed with, with today's guest and with what she has to offer. And I think it's so important in particular for helpers to be able to hear stories like this, because this is the reason so many of us got into this in the first place, right? We see something that is being done in a way and we're like, okay, well, that's not cool. Or this, there's a giant hole here, or this is not being addressed in the way that I think it could be, or it should be. And we get into it. And then in a lot of cases, we're just mired down. There's the red tape and there's the rules and there's expectations and, and things that we need to get done um, that all sort of take precedence or, or line up ahead of the reasons why we are here in the first place. And and that's when we, you know, it, it gets, it feels less awesome. We're like, well, why, <laughs> why am I still doing this if this is not the thing that I was wanting and hoping it to be? And what I think Nicole was able to do was to say, if this thing isn't what I'm wanting and hoping it to be, I'm going to just go out and do it the way that I think that it needs to be done. And that's why she's awesome. And that's why... I think everyone should listen to and appreciate today's podcast. So with that, here is my talk with Nicole Bixler. All right, 
so I have Nicole Bixler with me today, and I'm super excited that you agreed to do this. Thank you for taking Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really, I really appreciate it. Um, so can you just kind of talk a little bit? You do really amazing work. I was telling Nicole that I've been following, I've been like stalking what you're doing on Facebook. Um, but can you share a little bit about um, what you do, like who you are as a helping professional? Sure. I have a full-time job as a uh, social worker, but in my spare time, I have a nonprofit in uh, Kensington, Philadelphia. So what we do is street outreach. Um, we provide harm reduction supplies to people who use drugs and do sex work. Mm -hmm. uh, we also provide meals and any support we can to people wanting to get into treatment. And we also give um, scholarships for sober living costs for people that are moving into a recovery house. Wow, that's amazing. How long have you had that nonprofit? So we um, started in December of 2017 with just my husband and I, and we became an official nonprofit. I want to say it was the following May. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that we became a 501c3. Okay. I mean, that's pretty quick, right? That's relatively quick. Yeah. That you yeah. That. And is, is that the kind of work that you do? What do you do in your full-time job as a social worker? Is it the same kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, so I'm an executive director of a methadone program, um, and we do other medication-assisted uh, treatment there. And um, so I pretty much just run the clinic and um, deal with any issues that come up with, uh, like any patient's rights being violated or, um, any rules or policies that we're implementing and just run the day-to-day -day business aspect. But, um, it's cool because I get to still have my little stamp of, we need to make sure this is truly meeting the needs of the people we're serving. And, right. um, I get to have a hand in hiring, which is awesome because, I can feel people out and hire on skill, but also on like personality and morals with, um, you know, what their opinion is on the people that we're serving. So that's so important. So you have, it sounds like the mission of what you are doing in your full-time work is directly aligned with what you've then started outside of that too. Yes, mm -hmm. exactly. That's awesome. So have you always, is that the kind of work you've always done within the helping sphere? Have you ever worked in any other capacity? Um, this is really the realm that I've always wanted to be in. Um, I'm more drawn to working with people who um, our society kind of doesn't really have an interest in helping, or maybe laws are still in place that are very harmful. So I feel as though the people, like the population of people that are using all types of substances are really discriminated against from our laws all the way down to, you know, our personal opinions. So I, I love working with this population and that's all I've ever worked with in, in the social work field. Okay. And is that, is that passion directly what brought you to social work in the first place? Is that what brought you into the helping professions? Yeah, I actually, it was funny because I remember I had a GED and I think I was in my late 20s and I was working retail and one day I was like, I, I need to go back to school. So I went back for my CADC classes to become, to, to become an addictions counselor. Yeah. And my first class was a social work class and the teacher was an LCSW 
and she just was one of those kind of radical she got arrested for sitting in uh you know in Washington for like standing up for people's rights and she just really inspired me to just take it all away because she's like, no one is going to listen to you unless you have this degree, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But that's really what inspired me to be able to make some kind of movement um, and go for my social work degree. Right. Right. So you were, I mean, this person's modeling was kind of what made you believe that this was a, that you need <laughs> an advanced degree for anyone to take you seriously, which is an yeah. obnoxious component that's also yep. true a lot. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then B, that you could kind of go a pretty fair distance within the sphere of making a significant impact in a different yes. area. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, and then who are you personally? Like as far as just uh, your everyday life, your regular interests and all that, like just share a little bit about you. Um, so <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a dog mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I have three Jack Russells. I am, I mean, I love like punk rock music and I love going to shows with my husband and my friends and I love uh, like roller skating and just like trying different foods from around the world and traveling. Um, I just like, like having fun and kind of doing things that are a little bit different. Like I don't, I like to kind of mix it up. And if there's something cool that seems to be, you know, like a festival or something that's coming or a really, you know, weird and interesting museum, we go and we just like to do things that are fun and kind of edgy. And like, I'm a big Halloween person. I already started decorating. (laughs) Um, just, you know, anything that's kind of edgy and exciting. <laughs> Nicole, like all <laughs> good things. Ever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are you doing during COVID to keep yourself? <laughs> oh my gosh. So I got a pop-up pool because I live in the city. Um, so we really can't do much besides like Alfresco Dining just opened recently in the city. Uh, so, I mean, we went out to eat a couple times, but we've been honestly, this is really terrible. Uber Eats and Caviar are like my downfall living in the city. So we have been ordering in a lot and I know that's terrible, but, um, and just kind of watching like TV and hanging out with the dogs. I mean, there's not much really to do. Sometimes we'll have our group members over and of course, like socially distanced and wear masks, but, right. and we'll play like cards or something, but that's about it. We're boring. <laughs> It doesn't sound like you're boring. It just sounds like there's nothing to do, which is good. The nonprofit you started is called Operation in My Backyard. Yes. And it's centered in the Kensington community in Philadelphia, right? For now, yes, it is. For now, are you planning to expand it? Yes. So we tried to expand. We were going to expand into different parts of the city, into South and West Philly, but COVID happened. So um, it was kind of hard to really do any planning with our organization. So eventually, yes, we do want to expand, but for now we're serving in Kensington. Okay. Yeah. So share a little bit about, um, a little bit more about kind of the details of operation in my backyard and exact, you know, you kind of gave a an overview there, but what, um, tell us a little bit more about that. Okay. So, um, we'll start with a name because it kind of sums up who we are. Um, 
we got our name from that saying NIMBY, um, the not in my backyard mentality where people really don't like to have like supervised consumption sites or methadone programs, um, you know, in their neighborhood, like it's okay to help people just don't do it here kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So we want to be the opposite of that. Um, so we are really rooted in the belief system that harm reduction really does work. Mm-hmm. Um, we give out uh, safe use supplies. So we started out just giving out food at first, and then we branched off into doing food, and then we started giving out Narcan. Yeah. Um, and we eventually got a grant to give out um, safe injection supplies. So we give out syringes and all the supplies needed to safely inject drugs. And we also are providing smoking supplies now. Mm -hmm. Um, So people that use crack cocaine, we can provide them with new pipes, um, mouth covers, um, dry mouth gum, things of that sort to kind of help them be as safe as possible, especially if they're going to be sharing a pipe with somebody, they can use the cover and pass it along and uh, be a little bit safer and not contract anything from that person. Um, we also give out safe snorting supplies. people that are at that level in their drug use. Um, they're not super popular when we do street outreach, but when we do like any kind of events in the suburbs, usually, or like with people using behind closed doors, usually they're pretty popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also work with people who do sex work. So we have little packs that we give out that have condoms, um, vaginal wipes, uh, antibacterial wipes, mace, gum, hair ties, lip gloss. And we, up until COVID, were doing a ladies' night every month at the only legalized needle exchange in Philadelphia. Um, so we would go in there and provide a meal and an activity, which most of the time included one of my friends doing makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a safe space for um, females and those who identify as female to come in and have like a three hour window in their day to feel safe and they can take a nap, they could take a shower, but COVID kind of ruined that for now. Right. Um, but we also do basic wound care. Um, my, my husband is a nurse, so we have another nurse and a doctor in our group. So they will do some wound care. Many times the folks that we're serving really don't trust the system. They don't want to go to the hospital because they're treated terribly. So they'll sit out there for long enough to where their infection gets so bad, they have to have whatever area amputated. So we try to just offer them some sort of comfort by doing basic wound care and talking to them and building a relationship. Um, Before Philadelphia cleaned up, um, they had several encampments on the street under like bridge trestles. Right. So we were going there and it was just, you know, when it started, it was just my husband and I. And we would hang out with everybody that lived out there until like one o'clock in the morning when we had different work schedules and we would just hang out with them. And sometimes we'd bring a little like tailgating barbecue and, and give people jobs. And it was like a sense of community and kind of some normalcy in their life for, a, you know, a couple hours. So we've maintained relationships with those people since 2017 um there's like a small group of them that we still keep in contact with and some of them have gotten public housing and like we'll buy them groceries we'll go hang out with them we do dinner we do axe throwing like they're they're (laughs) friends I mean you know they use drugs they happen to be houseless you know sometimes and they're just like us and like I've been there personally and 
we're not judging anyone. And, and I would honestly rather surround myself with people that are in that situation than people that are judging people that are in that situation. So. Right. 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 I like the ax throwing just sort of in the middle. It was fun. You know what? And it's so funny. We took one of our friends from um, out there and he beat us. <laughs> and, and I was like, really? All right. We have to have like an encore of that. <laughs> I can't, so I can't imagine that you are, this is always an easy thing to do. Like there has to be major hurdles associated with this, right? There's like some kind of, you know, danger or difficulty or certainly being met with resistance from certain uh, groups. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like yeah. how do you navigate that? It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I went into this like, I mean, you knew me in school. I don't know how much you knew about like what happened, but like I was on the other side of that, always feeling judged anyway. Mm -hmm. So I knew going into this that it was going to be an uphill battle with like outside entities. So I just keep moving forward with that aspect. Like I really don't care what people think. And mm -hmm. it, as far as I'm concerned, if they don't agree with me, I feel as though they either don't understand like where we're coming from or they really haven't had impact them close to home right. so it's only a matter of time unfortunately and I don't wish that on anyone but it's just you know everybody knows somebody you know that this is affecting okay. um I think the biggest hurdle is the lack of self-care that I usually have and seeing folks that we've had like really great conversations with and built really close relationships either die or go to jail or yeah. contract, um, you know, certain diseases that they're unwilling to get treatment for because they've kind of just sometimes, you know, they've given up. Um, but, um, that, that I think is the most taxing and trying to remember, like, we can only do so much and not feeling guilty, I think for not giving more is like the biggest hurdle. The one thing that, so I've been following, Nicole and I went to high school together just to kind of put a whole preface <laughs> on all of this. So that's why, so we're like Facebook friends and like, you know, and you just sort of follow along and see what people are doing. But when she started this whole nonprofit initiative, I was like, oh my God, that's really interesting because I'm, I'm familiar with that area. I lived in Philadelphia for a really long time. I think that kind of work is very important. Um, and what seems really apparent with what you're doing is that it takes a significant amount of initiative and guts because I, to just like kind of double down on that, that is not easy work to do in that area. Like there are many people that are not excited that that's happening. <laughs> yeah, I know. So like that piece. And then um, I think there's a significant amount of courage too that goes into deciding I'm going to take initiative around something that's this important to me and I'm going to do it despite, um, you know, significant um, obstacles or opposition or, or whatever the case is. And I'm just going to kind of push through that. So it's, I think it's very clear that even what you said, like, this is the reason you went into social work. Like this, this is right. something that's that important to you. Um, right. So is that like, in order to sort of get to that place where you're like, this is something I need to take on personally myself and actually make something like, how did you arrive at that space? 
and then decide I'm going to make this thing a reality and I'm actually going to execute it? Like, what was that like? It was, um, I think I came to the realization that it wasn't just a once in a while thing when my husband and I were going down to the encampments and we were talking to one of our closest friends. He's like a brother to me, um, who we're still in contact with. He's still, he's still using. Um, but he was very like standoffish. He wasn't very trustworthy and it took several nights, several late nights of sitting on his mattress on the street while he was using and building that trust and that relationship with him. And we didn't even realize what we were doing at the time. We were just kind of hanging out. Mm. And one day he finally was like, I want to get out of here. Please help me. And I remember my husband was working. He had to get up. Like he had to be at work. I think it was at like seven or something. And I didn't have to be at work until like nine at the time. I went down to Kensington at 4 a.m. by myself. And I got him out of his tent and got him into an Uber. And I remember he looked at me and I could see the doubt in his eyes before he got into the car. And I was like, please just get in the car. Because I knew that's what he wanted. And I'm never one to push, but he got in the car and he got to treatment and he went through the program and he ended up going to a sober living, which we helped him out with. He was able to stay in recovery for about 90 days. Um, He did go back out, but that's like an amazing thing because he was able to like see that there is an option if he wants it. Right. Um, but I, it was at that point where I thought like, this is more serious than I thought. And if I'm going to be out here, I have to put my money where my mouth is and not just come out here with like, we don't have any intentions, but I feel like if people need us, we have to be able to back it up. So I think that that's when I realized, like, I can't just build relationships and not have the tools or the resources to back it up. Um, And that was when, you know, we met somebody along the way that was kind enough to hear my past. And um, he actually was the one that made my nonprofit happen. He did the paperwork and he ended up paying for it. And we're forever grateful. So. Wow. That's amazing. So this, and all this while you were also doing the work that you're doing now in your full-time work as, as the well, director or? No, at that point I was a therapist Okay. and I ran um, like a six hour partial care group, six yeah. hour a day, group. Um, but my hours were nine to five. So it was easier to kind of stay out a little bit later um, than the hours that I have now, but yeah. So I was still, I was still working in this field. It was just not as a executive director. Right, right. But it's clear that the work that you were doing in the partial program didn't feel like you didn't go home at the end of the day and were like, okay, I'm done. That's enough. Like, that's it. Like, you had this whole other piece that you were deeply emotionally connected to that was enough to get you out again then for a second shift. It sounds like at nighttime to go do this other piece. Yeah. Yeah. The, the partial care was a great, it was an amazing program and I'm really glad I, you know, was able to facilitate the groups there. But when you work for a treatment facility, there's only so much that you can do. And there's a lot of boundary issues that you have to follow as a social worker. And with what I do with my nonprofit, Mm -hmm. I can just be myself and I can go and sit on someone's mattress and I can give them my phone number, you know, like, yeah, I feel like I can do more. Yeah. 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 Oh my God. I go, we could do a whole other episode about like the limitations of licensure, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. 
right. I, that, I, I relate to that. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned kind of the harder pieces um, have been the, the self-care piece and also the piece of um, the inherent loss that comes with this kind of work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. How have you been able to manage that? Or I guess you just, you just have to, right? You just do. Yeah, sometimes we'll take time off. Um, you know, we had a traumatic incident happen with one of our friends out there that was like public. And we took some time off after that and just kind of regrouped and thought about like what our intentions are. And if it's, you know, we've even considered like, are we even helping anyone or are we out there for ourselves? Like what, like all these thoughts go through your head when something like that, that's really traumatic happens. Um, but then my my sadness usually turns into anger and then it usually turns into spite for like whatever caused it. And then I'm usually getting up and getting back out there. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm like, we should hang out. I, I, uh, yeah. I have I a very similar feeling about life. Um, <laughs> like just the primary motivating factor there is just yep. an intense amount of anger that transpires. Um <laughs> So as far as the self-care, and you mentioned that as a difficulty, and I think that that I, more people, more social workers, more helping professionals than not would say, yeah, that's hard. Yeah. Um, so how do you prioritize yourself and your own wants and your own needs while doing all of this? I mean, ostensibly a full-time job and then what sounds like even more than a full-time job. Like, how do you do that, if at all? Well, the one thing that I definitely have implemented that is pretty helpful is I can feel when I'm getting to my limit emotionally. So other than, you know, eating right and all the regular self-care kind of things that you can do, when I'm really genuinely like feeling like I'm going to break I have to set boundaries as painful as they are. Like I have to tell, you know, moms who have lost their kids or families whose loved one is missing or friends who are messaging and they're like, Hey, so-and-so needs help. I have to say, I'm not available right now. I'm sorry. Like, and it's the worst thing. I hate doing it, but I have to set the boundary of, you know, I, I just can't right now. I need some time. Um, I just stop thinking about this and think about things that don't matter for a while and focus on that because like focus on what's in front of me. Otherwise I'm just going to snap Yeah, because it's, it's heavy, you know, it's, it's a lot of stuff, but boundary setting is my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let me set this scene for you. I was 35 years old, working at a residential program 50 plus hours a week, making less than $50,000 a year on public service loan forgiveness with nine years to go, two graduate degrees to pay for that totaled $101,000. I watched my interest accrue as I made minimum payments until my balance hit $121,000. I felt terrified, anxious, unwell, and I was sure that I couldn't stick it out to have my loans forgiven without having a mental breakdown. 
Do you relate to this story at all? Then I have a program for you. So I have a four week group intensive program rolling out in January 2021 that will identify your stuck points and create an individualized plan for you to get out of student debt so you can be financially free. You'll work with me and a small group of like-minded individuals to follow the process that I did to pay off all my debts in a few years while increasing my income and cultivating a more satisfying career and lifestyle. Do you wanna learn more? Visit my website at danabelletier.com and check out the Help Yourself Group Intensive. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Do you scan the night sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena? Do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the CIA? Ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of? Come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. We'll talk about telepomancy, haunted railroads, sentient umbrella spirits, mind altering video games, remote viewing, SpongeBob conspiracy theories, and only gets weirder from there. Each episode will share three stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey! hey. I wonder too, if for you, like just the, the way that you talk about this, if there is a piece of you that has a very personal investment in terms of what you're doing, like almost kind of fighting for um, yourself and communities that you identify with by doing this kind of work, you know? Like, 100%, yeah. Yeah, because I imagine that that's very motivating too, um, to... Like you, said, yeah. like you said, with that personal anger that comes up, like it's almost like you're out there sort of fighting not only on behalf of maybe a stranger you don't know, but this is my community. These are my people. This is something that I identify with in a very close way. And, and that makes it much more of a personal mission. Yeah, it's it's personal. You know, I had my history with drug use and, you know, what happened. And it's, you know, I don't ever want anyone else to feel the way that I felt and be treated the way that I was treated. Mm. And it was before the pill crisis and all that. Like I, you know, it was before all that, before all this awareness and all that. And, you know, there's just so many people that have been in that situation before me from different, like, um, racial backgrounds, different socioeconomic statuses that have felt even worse. And I'm just like, we have to stop this. Like our us, like the people that use drugs, like I don't use currently, but the people that we're using in the past or are still using, we need to be the voices behind the movement that's happening right now because no one else is going to stand up for us the way that we would stand up for ourselves. Like no one knows how we feel. Yeah. So I feel like it is very personal. Um, and I don't, I, if there's anything that I can do to change the way that people see folks who use drugs, and I mean people that don't even have a substance use diagnosis because not everybody that uses drugs has that. Some people can use in a problematic way and it's not a disorder. It's just a symptom of their environment. And like, we need to change the way that society sees that and change our drug laws and change just how we deal with it. I think it's insane that someone's life could be ruined because of somebody else's opinion about them and somebody else's opinion about a substance that they're in possession of. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Mm. So I feel like it's like very close to my heart that it needs to change. Yes. Right. So what, so you started, it's been 
three years, um, four years that since you've begun this, Mm -hmm. this piece. So what is, um, it sounds like it's kind of something that you're hoping to expand or we're planning on expanding, like where, what direction are you taking this in? What are you hoping to do or what have you already accomplished with it? So, um, we were able to get our first pretty decent sized grant. Um, I think it was a year ago almost maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Um, I want to take it to every neighborhood and outside of Philadelphia. Like I want, I want people to understand what overdose prevention means that everybody is potentially, you know, could be a victim of an overdose. We want to expand into being accepted as a normal conversation that people have, even if it's not my particular group, it's just, the whole movement. Like I want people to see us. I want people to think that, oh, a syringe exchange program is totally great. Let's put it next to Starbucks Mm -hmm. because this is the same, like we have to look at this as there's a doctor's office on whatever corner they want to be on. Why are we pushing clinics and pushing people that use drugs into the shadows in alleyways where you have like an inconspicuous doorway that they have to go through? Like, why can't they just be treated like a person? So I want to expand the syringe program. I want to get Narcan into the hands of every single person I can. I want, you know, people that don't agree with us to at least hear us out. Like, I want to expand it outside the city eventually. And if I ever move away from this area, I want it to continue. And, um, you know, we need to get more progressive with this. So my only care is to expand it to our, in, like our impact being strong enough, even as a whole collaboration in Philadelphia with the other groups to leave a mark that like, we're not going away and this is going to change. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, I think, um, in talking with a lot of people that do social work or help, like I, I, a social worker also, Um, and, uh, there's just, there's, there's always, I I feel like there's always a sense of kind of, (laughs) there's often a sense of depletion where it's like you, you kind of, when I'm talking to someone, there's, there's like an exhaustion or there's just so much taken out of us. And I think that it's often left up to us to figure out how to, um, rejuvenate and replenish. And just hearing you talk about what you're doing, it's, I, it, I, I feel like you get rejuvenated by doing this thing. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, I do. <laughs> which is amazing, which is like, that's like the gold standard, right? Like, I think that's what all of us are hoping to happen. And then like, so few of us actually get that experience. We're like, oh no, like I need to stop working 12 hours a day because I'm going to you know, fall over and not be a human, but you're like, it it seems like for you, this is something, this is like taking a nap. (laughs) (laughs) It's so funny that you say that. Cause like when I get back from outreach, I'm like high on adrenaline. Like I can't go to sleep. Like I'm so excited. And any other night, if I would have stayed up till 10 and got up at four, I would have been exhausted, but I'm like ready to go. It's so weird. Yeah. That's, I think that's amazing. I think that's what that's what people are looking for from the work that they're doing, and so often I think we find these sort of agency jobs, and which no, 
you know, shade or whatever to that. It's just that yeah. those things have more of a tendency maybe to take life out of us as opposed to give life to us. And maybe that has something to do with some of the restrictions that you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and like very intense boundaries that keep us feeling disconnected in certain ways. Um, but it's, it seems like you've been able to create a thing to manifest that for yourself. It's really incredible. Thank you. Um, and obviously it's really important too. So there's, you know, it's, you're doing something very important for, for the community. And the, the question that I would have for you then, so if we have other helping professionals that are listening to this, right, um, and what's what we assume the, the audience is, um, and these are people that might be super passionate about their own thing, might be very attached to something the way that, that you are to your mission, um, and maybe they're like dabbling in that, in the social work they're doing, or in their agency work, or, or wherever it is that they are, but aren't fully feeling like it's hitting the nail on the head in terms of like meeting that need or addressing that mission mm-hmm. um, or having the impact that they want to have. Like what advice would you give to those people about taking initiative and creating something for themselves? Um, and like, where would they begin? Um, well, I would say like, <clears throat> excuse me, when you, I, I would think that when you were in that position, like, identifying like where those barriers were that like it's not meeting your need because you're like clearly I've been there you're frustrated with something that's happening in the system and you're like why is this like this why isn't it changing now when you identify that and it makes you angry enough find the niche there that you can make those two pieces fit together in your own way even if you don't have the backing of the agency that you're working for or whatever there's other people just like you that are feeling the same way about the same issue and like finding them and banding together and not shutting up about it. Honestly, read as much as you can learn as much as you can about the laws and what you can and can't get away with. Figure out like if there's, you know, I'm not very, I'm not a very political person. I I would love to be more involved with like advocacy work, but like if there's any, you know, meetings that you can go to to advocate for change or, you know, getting petitions signed, like any possible creative avenue that you can do to force your way in there and make that change and make it happen, I would do it because no one else is going to do it because they don't care because we are working with populations. No matter what form of social work you do, I feel like there's always an area for oppression, discrimination. Like there's always that area where people just, you know, the government's not going to throw a bunch of money at us to help right. people that they're not going to get any return that they think they're not going to get any return from when we're looking at them as like they're human beings. We need to figure out a way to like make the system work properly. It's going to have to be up to us to be like the squeaky wheel and like not shut up until we get what we want. Mm. That's great. That's, great. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and finally, why do you think? it's important for helping professionals, for social workers, for, for helpers to chase their personal mission. Why, what do you think is the value in that? I think every, at least for me, like in, in my social work class, people all had a reason for going into this field. You can be very flexible there. We all have a personal reason on some level for going into the social work field. And I feel like we're going to work harder with what we feel has either personally impacted us or like we feel super passionate about 
So like run with that, you know, that's why, why go to school for that long and rack up that much debt to do something that you're punching a time clock and like feeling like you have no movement. Like being a social worker means that we get to be loud and obnoxious and we get to like rock the boat, you know, it's like (laughs) kind of what we're known for. We get to go to jail for standing up for what we believe in, you know, like, and that's a privilege. And we, I think we need to like ride that out and speak up for people that can't. Right. So. Yep. That's great. And so where can people find you? So if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing about operation in my backyard, where, what's the best place for people to find out more about you and the organization? So we have been working on a website for a while and it's not done, but we're on Facebook. Um, It's operation in my backyard page. And you could do the little at symbol and then all capitals, O-P-I-M-B-Y, and it'll pull it up. Um, We're on Instagram and it's the at symbol and it's lowercase O-P underscore I-M-B-Y. We're also on Instagram, but, or I'm sorry, Twitter, but we don't really use that one. But you can also email us, um, Operation M-B, I-M-B-Y at yahoo.com. Um, but we usually post our outings and, uh, we do a lot of fundraisers around the city, but COVID has squashed that for now. Mm. Um, but you could always message the page or, um, you know, email me. Yeah. What's the best way if people just want to donate or something like that to just email you? So we have a Venmo. Let me look it up. Um, if you go to Venmo, Venmo, it's the at symbol. It's capital O, lowercase p, capital I, lowercase mby. Um, and then we also have like PayPal on our Facebook page. So if you just hit like donate on the Facebook page, it'll take you to our PayPal account. And you can also find us on the Network for Good website um, as a nonprofit organization that's recognized, you know, we report all of our earnings and uh, where our money's going and everything. We don't pay ourselves or all volunteers. Um, you know, all of our money is used to go directly back out to the street. Yes, people donate to this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking time to talk about this. I really, I really appreciate your time and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Well, thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this. This is awesome. Yeah, that's so great. Okay. So that's our show. For more for Nicole, to find her and the work that she's doing, you can go to Facebook. There's Operation In My Backyard page. There's a PayPal there if you want to donate. On Instagram, they're at op underscore imby. You can email Nicole at Operation MB, again, imby, at yahoo.com. And you can also Venmo them at OpMB, O-P-I-M-B-Y. And guys, if you have resources and want to donate, I think this is a really great place to do it. So go, go for that. They're also on the Network for Good website. You can find them there. For more from me, you can check out DanaBellatier.com. You can check out at Help for the Helpers podcast on Instagram and the Help for the Helpers Facebook page. 
and we will talk to you again next week.